This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Here is Libby Snymer. Welcome back. Our house doctor, Dr. Zach, is in the house. I'm going to give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You can call him with your questions. And uh, it's International Women's Day today, so let's start with some talk about women's health. Most medications are geared to and tested on men. And while women get the same diseases as men, the signs and symptoms are different. And that can mean deadly delays in diagnosis. And nowhere is that more evident than with heart disease and heart attacks. Dr. Zach, hi. And how does that play out in your emergency ward? Hi, Libby. So, yeah, it definitely plays out. And everything you said is absolutely true and important for people to be aware of. So women present... Uh, you know, women present for the same reasons. The top reasons that people present to the emergency department tend to be chest pain, abdominal pain. Their whole, there's a list of top ten, but those are the top two, I'd say. And one of the things that doctors have hopefully become aware of uh, in the past few years, and hopefully the general public as well, is that women can and often do present differently. Their symptoms are somewhat different from men uh, who are having a heart attack. So the typical things that everyone thinks of or that we uh, or the doctors think of are the sort of crushing chest pain slash chest pressure may radiate into the arm, may radiate up to the jaw, often associated with other things such as shortness of breath, nausea, dizziness, and sweating. Whereas women, now this is not to say that women don't get that, and in fact the majority of women will still uh, have those types of symptoms, but they may have them to a lesser degree, and they may feel more uh, vague symptoms, including uh, back pain, including more of an emphasis on nausea or lightheadedness and uh, jaw or neck discomfort. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people will present without any chest discomfort at all. Certainly no chest pain at all. That's quite common that people don't describe it as a pain. So it's important for everyone to know that it's not necessarily a pain when someone's having a heart attack. It's often just a squeezing or a pressure-like sensation. But some people don't have any chest uh, symptoms at all, and that's especially true for women. Sometimes it's really something different, especially nausea or lightheadedness or or some discomfort in the jaw or arm and not necessarily the chest. That's um, That's actually very worrying because what you're describing, I mean, could be anything. I get nauseated if uh, I eat too much. Yes. Well, no, absolutely. That's the problem, you know, and that's one of the, that's a problem uh, for us doctors and for people, you know, patients as well. And it's one of the reasons, you know, that unfortunately, as you mentioned, you know, there there's good studies. A couple of years ago uh, here, there was a study showing that women who present to uh, to the emergency department are treated more slowly, basically, uh, for their heart attack. So the, by the time they get to the cath lab or to the lysis, the thrombolysis, where you break down the clot, there's a delay in women. And, you know, one of the explanations for that is that their symptoms may be more vague. Uh, there are certainly other explanations for sure, including that, you know, 
including that the symptoms are not recognized as such, either by the person themselves or by uh, the healthcare practitioner. And certainly what, one of the things we say is uh, if, if it's different, you know, you know, by the time people are of a certain age, they've lived a certain number of years and they have a certain sense of what's normal for them after a big meal or, after a, uh, or, or when they get indigestion. But something that is different, significantly different from the usual symptoms that's persisting longer than it should and that's associated with anything, any other symptoms that may be unusual. So maybe you're used to getting uh, some nausea or uh, indigestion feeling, but if that is more severe or it's associated with other things such as dizziness, sweating, shortness of breath, then really you have to take it seriously. You know, it may end, you may end up, uh, it may end up being nothing, but it's always better to err on the side of caution in these kind of situations. Okay, I think that's good advice. I'm going to give the numbers again. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We were talking uh, to honor International Women's Day. Excuse me. uh, The difference in women's uh, symptoms for heart attacks and uh, what you should look for and what you should not ignore. Uh, Zach, are there any other issues in terms of uh, women getting different symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so heart is certainly the most uh, well-recognized and the most well-studied, but there are others. And one of the things, I was just looking at uh, some recent uh, studies, and even for other things, so abdominal pain, and abdominal pain is one of the most common reasons that people come to the emergency department as well. And obviously, it's sometimes a little more complicated in women, especially with, when it's in the lower part of the abdomen, because you also have to include the internal reproductive organs that uh, that may be the cause of the pain. So, um, so for example, if you have a right lower abdominal pain, uh, you know, in men we often will think, oh, you know, is it a kidney stone? Is it appendicitis? But in women, of course, it's important to consider the ovary. Uh, I, I was just reading an article about uh, a woman who who presented with that kind of pain. And there was a delay in diagnosis. They, they thought it was a kidney stone, and ultimately it was a, a torsion of an ovary, and that's something that needs to be treated quite rapidly. And in this article, they, they mentioned that this is a, an, American, uh, an American article, but the average wait before getting an analgesic for acute abdominal pain for men was 49 minutes and for women was 65 minutes. And so the question is why, um, and I don't, I don't have a great explanation for it. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly potentially an element of sexism there, um, but uh, regardless, it's Do important. you think, sorry, do you think yeah. that uh, women maybe tend to, <coughs> sorry, Zach, do you yeah. think women maybe tend to downplay their symptoms and, and men make a, a bigger deal when they feel sick? Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, one of the things, there, there's a, um, an expression it's a, in, in Quebec where they say, uh, grippe d'homme. So basically, a man cold, a man flu. A man cold, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, they, you know, they say it in English Canada too, but basically, when a man gets sort of a cold or flu like symptoms, it's the end of the world. Uh, this is a general uh, generalization, of course, as opposed to a woman who just kind of trudges through. And I think one of the explanations is certainly that. Uh, often women will just say, oh, you know, it's nothing, and, and they'll just think, well, their, their symptoms are nothing. And on the other hand, on the other side of things, I think one problem can be that sometimes uh, when they do get to the hospital, sometimes uh, people may, may err on the side of thinking, oh, well, you know, it's nothing, or they're just being overly dramatic, even though, even though it may be, I'd act, actually be interested to look at it, it may be actually that men 
are actually more dramatic than women in, in displays of pain, but that's a I'm, I'm just hypothesizing there. Okay. Now, I'm going to take one call. We literally have one minute before traffic and news. So, Remy in Toronto, if you have a question, please frame it quickly. And, Zach, please answer it quickly. Yep. Yeah, I, I went to my doctor the other day, actually, and uh, because uh, I jumped up uh, like a heart attack symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I really was worried. Then, uh, when I was in my doctor, my blood pressure was okay. Okay. But, uh, I said to him, I, I said I am barping though, with like a, like an acid reflux. Yeah. So now he's uh, he's sending me for a stress test. Okay. So is that uh, related maybe to an acid reflux or? Well, thanks, Remy. It's a good question. That? So. Basically, yes, you, some people do just have sort of uh, burping-type symptoms and uh, indigestion symptoms as, as their symptom of heart disease, and a stress test is a good way to figure that out. Now, that's not to say necessarily now you can just have indigestion totally unrelated uh, to it being from the heart, so it may be that as well. And the other thing, is it's, the other thing I'll mention is it's certainly possible to have a heart, heart problem, including a heart attack, and have perfectly normal blood pressure, so I... I certainly w- wouldn't be totally reassured by that, but I think the stress test is, is a good idea just to make sure that the heart is not the cause of this discomfort that you're having. Okay. Zach, hold that thought. We're going to take a break for traffic and news and people. Dr. Zach will be back to answer more of your questions after that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. Fight Back on Zoomer Radio continues. Here is Libby Zneimer. Welcome back. Dr. Zach, our house doctor, is in the house. And the numbers to call, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. And, uh, Zach, we were talking about heart attack symptoms for women and how they are different. I know you also wanted to talk about polypharmacy, taking many medications, and uh, how they may interact with each other. And and I think that in that case as well, there's obviously a difference with women. Women are smaller than men, and uh, the drugs can have a different effect on them. Well, absolutely. That's the thing. You know, in, in kids, uh, you know, pediatricians are always very uh, aware of details. They're detail-oriented, and everything is done by by kilogram, you know, so milligram, the doses are all milligram per kilogram, and so uh, the physicians take very good care of making sure that it, that uh, the dosing is done that way. In adults, we tend to be less uh, less precise, so we say, okay, you know, for example, uh, okay, take 500 milligrams of that of uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, and that's good for everybody. But like you're saying, it's really uh, it depends on your size. It depends on how you metabolize. It depends on your size, and of course, it depends on other things as well. Since medications interact not only with other medications, but they interact with uh, anything else that you're taking into your body, and they interact with a disease process as well. But and and things are metabolized differently in women as well. So, uh, any time that you are prescribed a new medication, it's worth keeping in mind uh, the idea that not you know, obviously not one size fits all. And what is a safe dose in a male who weighs 100 kilos is wow. a probably 
potentially a toxic dose in a woman who weighs 50 kilos. Well, I I have to just uh, bring in a personal experience, and I was prescribed a new medication, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was told, uh, and I only take it occasionally, they said, take half the tab. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing I tried it. I took half a tab, and whoa, (laughs) I thought I was going to faint. Then I I told the doctor, I said, you know, I I think I need a quarter of a tab, not half a tab. Yeah. Uh, Because, uh, you know, it it was a good thing that I tried it in a situation where it wasn't going to be a big deal. But, but yeah, Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, that you might need less if you're a smaller person. Why why does the industry still, uh, you know, measure everything by men? There's no good reason. You know, I mean, that's why it, it should be what we stop doing when people get to probably around 18 is we stop measuring by, by kilo. You know, we just say, okay, well, a general dose for an adult is this, but adults come in many different sizes and shapes. And also our tolerance and our metabolism is very different from one another. And so, uh, you know, I think obviously classically, um, every, you know, classically so much, so much, of medical research was done primarily on you know white males and then and then in general people would just extrapolate and think that everyone else in the world was an adult white male which of course <laughs> which of course is very wrong <laughs> uh, so i mean hopefully that is changing and hopefully uh, we we as doctors and as patients and as pharmacists can pay more attention to you know making sure that we're actually doing what's best for the patients and paying attention to prescribing the right medication for the right patients. Okay, let's go to the phones. We have Debbie in Ajax. You have a question about drugs? Yes, hello. Hi, how are Hi. you? Hi. Yes, I have a question um, about, um, well, I've been on a uh, withdrawal program um, from Adderall mm-hmm. for about six, eight months. And right. it's the, and I have uh, two months to go. And I've been taking the Adderall proper that, can you just explain what Adderall is? Sorry, can you explain what that is for those of us who don't know? Oh, it's for uh, attention deficit. Yep. Okay. And based, yeah, and so it's an alternative to the Ritalin, I guess. Yeah. And um, in any case, the generic just came out, and so I was switched over to that because of my drug plan. And now I'm reading on the Internet about how well, at least for the states, the FDA says that they allow an 85% to 125% leeway as long as the people that reproduce it um, get that right, get, are within that margin. So it's not a clone. And basically, I'm just thinking, your body gets used to something, right? Yep. And I can notice a bit of a difference. And I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's anything major because I'm at the tail end of it anyway. Right. But I do notice something, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're are you you're getting off of it totally? That's Definitely. the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. But you, and when did you switch from the uh, from the Adderall to the generic? Uh, four days ago. Oh, four days ago. Okay. Five days ago. Yeah. And you've noticed a difference. Yeah, almost yeah. like a delayed reaction one day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up a few important points. I mean, one is just the idea of. Uh, of getting off medications, but especially medications that are psychoactive, like uh, Adderall, which is a stimulant, or antidepressant medications also. It's important to get off them slowly because people, you know, I've seen people come into the hospital thinking they're having a stroke 
because they're having such severe symptoms because they've stopped one of these medications very quickly. So it's very important to consult with your doctor rather than just stopping. And, and the other thing that you, you bring up is the difference between generic and brand name medications. And so, like you're saying, basically the generic companies have to have uh, a good match as to the active ingredient. So when you're talking about that, uh, I think you said 75 or 80% to 120%, uh, it has to be, the active ingredient has to be the same active ingredient and it has to be uh, at least as close to 100% as active as the uh, initial drug. But the rest of it, all the fillers and uh, the colorings and whatnot can be quite different. And sometimes, you know, what we don't think of is that sometimes we do react differently to those supposedly inert substances. And so not infrequently, people will have a different response to the generic. That's not to say necessarily that it's not as effective, but, but people definitely do feel a, di a difference. Some people actually do better with the generic. Some people do better with the name brand. But once your body, like you're saying, once your body is used to one, switching to the other, yeah, the vast majority of the time withdrawal. people like, will want to get it different. right. You're almost at the end. Why not, you know? Okay. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, thanks for your call. Uh, we're going to move along here, and we've got Wayne in London. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Yeah, fine. Thank you very much for taking my call. I would like to ask Dr. Zach, I have ankylosing spondylitis, and I also have iritis in my eyes. Uh -huh. Can you tell me why people with anky spawn develop iritis or uveitis, please? And, and can you please explain to us what these things are? Oh, yeah. Uh, iritis is inflammation of the eye. Ankylosing spondylitis is arthritis of the lower spine and neck. It's like bamboo spine. It's like bamboo spine? Yeah. Okay. So thanks for your question, Wayne. And so, uh, yeah, so and you, and you need a very good job explaining, basically. So ankylosing spondylitis, like you said, is uh, it's a chronic uh, autoimmune condition that affects the spine and ends up making it more, more stiff, basically, and people can end up with uh, less flexibility, and pain and stiffness anywhere from uh, the, the neck down to the lower back. And so the question is, what's the association with uveitis, which uh, exactly as you said is an inflammation of the uvea, uh, which is the covering of the eye. In general, basically the reason that they're associated, the reason that they're considered to be associated is that they're both, uh, they're both immune diseases that, are, that involve inflammation. And this is something that actually I think more and more physicians are becoming more and more aware of are these conditions, these autoimmune conditions where the body, we have a, you know, we have this immune system, which is a good thing because it fights off all of the uh, infections and things that we don't want. But however, if our immune system acts uh, to attack something that is actually self, uh, so you get like an immune reaction against something that is not necessarily pathological, then you, then that can be a problem. And there are a lot of, um, autoimmune diseases that we're learning about right now that involve inflammation uh, and one of those is ankylosing spondylitis and having one of these uh, issues such as ankylosing spondylitis that's an inflammatory condition does increase the risk of other inflammatory issues so uh, that would include things like uveitis now the question is uh, and that's not really I mean the answer that I'm giving you is just we've noticed that different inflammatory conditions once you are predisposed to having one inflammatory condition, so the ankylosing spondylitis, there is a relationship between that and a higher likelihood of having other inflammatory conditions of which uveitis is one. Yeah. Having said that, uh, ideally, I, I assume you're seeing 
There's a question, Wayne. Are you seeing someone, a specialist? Uh, yeah, I see an ophthalmologist and since night. Okay. 19, since 1987, I've okay, had over 70 eye injections in my eye. Wow. wow. I had flare-ups in, with uveitis. I have to go immediately and get it, get it looked after. Okay, Zach, we're going to have to take a break. If you can okay. just have a, a final thought on this, please. Well, I'm glad you're having, uh, getting it looked at. And, yeah, these are, these are complex things. And the important thing is, Wayne, that you are being seen by specialists about it. And for anyone, you know, anytime you're having significant eye pain or visual disturbance, it's important to get that checked out right away. Okay. Uh, we're going to be back with more from Dr. Zach after a short break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Here is Libby Snymer. Welcome back. Our house doctor, Dr. Zach, is in the house. The numbers to call 416 360 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we have some people who have been waiting patiently. Julia in Milton. Hello. Hello. Um, and all the best there, Libby, on uh, taking over the show. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have two questions here. It's about taking half a pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you cut a pill in half, uh, is there a safe way to take it? And if it gets stuck in your throat, how can you deal with it? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Uh, thank you for the question, Julia. So there's two things. Now, number one is it's important to uh, check with uh, your pharmacist and check or, and or check with your doctor before you split a pill because not all pills are this, effective. Is, this is a, a magnesium pill that I took that I had a problem with once, and it's like 500 milligrams. It's about three-quarter inch in length, so I decided okay. I didn't want the full 500. I just wanted uh, the 250. Right. So I cut it, like with a pill cutter, I cut yeah. it in half, and it ended up actually getting stuck in my throat, and I ended up in the emergency hospital. Oh, my oh goodness. <laughs> well, you know, Julia, that's, that's, I'm glad you brought up that as well because uh, it's not uncommon. I have to tell you, we see it not infrequently that uh, sometimes pills or other things, I should mention, other things get stuck in the esophagus and, and people just can't get them out and they end up having to come into the ER and get uh, have a gastroscopy where the doctor usually either fishes it out or pushes it through. And one, yeah, one problem with splitting a pill, especially if it's one that isn't necessarily meant to be split and has rough edges, is that it can get caught in one of the grooves in the esophagus. So it's something definitely to keep in mind. And so if you're considering that, I think it's worthwhile mentioning to the pharmacist because there's probably, they may be able to switch it for you with a, something that actually is of a, of a lower dose but has round edges that will get through more easily. So is it, like if you did split a pill, is there any safe way to take it? Like I take it with warm water. Yeah. I thought that might help um, Well, definitely. It a bit. Definitely taking it with liquid. I mean, I, I get some people may say, "Oh, that's obvious," but there's a fair number of people who take pills uh, dry. They just kind of swallow them, and that's you know most of the time that works out okay. But it's definitely safer to take it with a liquid, and it doesn't. There's no specific liquid necessarily. Water is a good water is a good one. Um, depending, I mean, there are some medications you're not supposed to take with specific liquids, but generally water is always a good choice. Warm water is probably warm water is probably good unless uh, in some split pills, it may actually increase the breakdown. So, if, And if it starts to break down before it gets to the stomach, that's not necessarily uh, a great thing because you may end up having some indigestion as a result of that. So sometimes cold water would actually be preferable to warm water in that case. Okay. And if it did get stuck in your throat, is there any suggestions like other than going to the hospital? 
Well, the only thing really to do is if, if it's stuck, if you can feel it kind of in the throat or in the esophagus, the main thing is trying to wash it down. That's the main thing that you can try and do. And, uh, you know, the majority of the time it, it will get washed down. But, some, but if it's really stuck and you, you, you can't get out whatsoever, then unfortunately, ultimately, there's not much you can do yourself, you know. And I wouldn't advise people to induce vomiting. You know, some people will try and uh, stick their finger down their throat. And, but the problem is if you have some irritation or inflammation in the throat or in the esophagus, you can actually end up with more harm than good by doing that. So I would try and wash it down as much as possible. And if that doesn't work, you, you don't have much of a choice but to head into the hospital. Yeah, okay, Julia, really thanks for your All call. Right, thank you very much. Okay. Okay. We have quite the lineup here. We're going to go to Al in Brantford. Hi, Al. Hi there. Listen, uh, I got a good question here. Okay. We were at the doctor's yesterday, uh, Dr. Zach. We were at the doctor's yesterday. My wife's uh, cholesterol is up quite a bit, and he wanted to put her on statins, and we decided to hold off for a bit and see if there's something in the diet we can change to bring it down. Yes. And so did you? Did your doctor have any recommendations, or did he just say? Well, yeah, yeah, he said, you know, get the wheat out, and uh, he'd give us a bit of a diet and stuff, but there's more than that. He said to look it up on Google and check it all out (laughs) ourselves. Yeah, so so generally, uh, you know, I, I certainly salute you. I mean, I and I certainly agree with you. You want to try everything you can uh, before resorting to medications, but in a lot of people, it's still necessary to use the medications. So n- number one, before we get to diet, I'm sure you know, uh, being physically active uh, regularly will help with the cholesterol and keeping the weight in a uh, in a healthy range will help with the cholesterol as well as other things, including the blood pressure. In terms of cholesterol specifically. Uh, what to eat. There, there are two categories of things I would say. Number one is fats, you know, the good, the good fats as opposed to the bad fats. The bad fats being, uh, well, number one, the trans fats. Just don't have any trans fats at all. You just look on the labels, and if you're buying, hopefully you're avoiding for the most part uh, packaged cookies and donuts and whatnot, but we if are. you aren't, at least, at least get the ones without any trans fats added. And then the saturated fats are bad, too, for the most part. So you want to, you know, meat, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian personally, but, but I do know that having red meat frequently is not a good idea. So if you're, gonna, if you're a meat eater, try and stick with fish more often than chicken, more often than, than beef and the red meats, which tend to be the worst in terms of the fats. And in terms of carbohydrates, if you're going to have carbohydrates, which, you know, most people have some carbohydrates. So I'm talking about uh, wheat and sugar and pasta and uh, breads. Stick with the brown ones a lot more than the white ones. Those, those are digested more slowly. And by being digested more slowly, they don't cause the same uh, spikes in your blood sugar. And the spikes in blood sugar, things like uh, fruit juices, for example, I'd avoid those tubes because they've actually been shown from, from causing the increase in your blood sugar, they actually have been shown to increase your triglycerides, which is one of the bad cholesterols. I'm going to weigh in here. Uh, yeah. There have been studies done on which diets are best for cardiovascular health, and the one that generally comes out on top all the time is called the DASH diet. And you can look that up, and it'll give you a lot of information. As a matter of fact, recently they amended the DASH diet because it used to be really, really, really low fat. Mm -hmm. And they found that even if they added in a bit more fat, good fat, uh, that it it was still as effective. And it's also, it's not really a hard diet to stay on because you're not deprived. Would you agree Mm -hmm. with that, Zach? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the key. You know, if if you're depriving yourself, then there's always that... uh, 
that motivation, the forbidden fruit that you want to taste. But if you, you're able to enjoy what you're eating, well, that, then it's a real lifestyle that you can continue with. How long, Zach, do you think that Al should try to uh, get to deal with this through diet before having his wife uh, go on the drugs? Usually the trial, the recommended trial period is about three months because that's the amount of time that you need to see a change. Uh, it, t- it takes about that time to see if you're actually making a dent. So I'd say certainly get it checked out in about three months and see, uh, you know, see the weight, see the blood pressure, and get the, the uh, cholesterol checked and see how it's going. Okay. That's, that's exactly the time limit he said. Come back in three months, do what you can do, and come back and we'll check it. Perfect. Okay, good luck to you. Thanks, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, Uh, and we have Estelle in St. Catharines. Hi, Estelle. Estelle? Yes, hello. Hi, how Uh, are you? Great, I'm great. I have a question for the doctor. Um, I suffer from uh, cold uticaria, and it's severe. And I was wondering, is there any way... What is that? Tell us what it is. Okay, cold uticaria is an allergy to cold temperatures. Uh, my limit's about 50 degrees or so. And, I and you live in Canada? Test. Pardon? And you live in Canada? Where am I going to go? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. If there's a temperature dip, uh, my body registers it. Um, and I was wondering, is there a diet or something that can help control this? Um, I don't know if you know anything about it. Um, I, I'm at a loss. I really am. Yeah. So, um, so I, I hear your frustration, Estelle, and like you're saying, yeah, these, the cold urticaria. Urticaria is just the, the doctor word for hives. Yeah. It's basically, yeah, it's an allergy where hives develop uh, when the body, when the skin is is uh, exposed to cold. And and uh, Estelle, you have it pretty well uh, established that 50 degrees is your. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that's 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, of course. Uh, is yeah. is uh, is when you start to get it. Now the uh, so in terms of diet, you know, honestly, I, I'm not aware of a diet. I, I'm I'm probably aware of the same things you are. I assume you've seen a, an allergist, eh, uh, Estelle, about this? Yes, I did uh, okay. about 30 years ago. Um, oh. Yeah, and they say that there's uh, really nothing they can do about it anymore. Um, I was born with it. I uh, didn't realize it until I was under a very stressful situation. Like, I always had the hives and things, but um, it got very, very serious back in the 80s. Yeah. And I find now that, uh, and I can't even get disability because the, com- the go- government doesn't recognize it as a disability. But oh. walking outside or even driving in a cold situation, I cannot take a city bus. I can't do anything in the winter. Oh, yeah, um, no, it's pretty severe. I, uh, yeah, let me say it two is things. very severe. I can die from it, so. Yeah. Uh, so two things I would say is, you know, uh, I'm sure you're aware of some of these things. You know, obviously warming up quickly after exposure to a cold temperature is a good idea before the hives get worse. And some people report, again, it's, uh, some people report that actually, and I would talk to an allergist, but there are some uh, people who actually use different types of uh, lubricants including I've heard of some people using butter or vegetable shortening over the areas uh, to try and prevent, uh, decrease the risk of future uh, eruptions. But the, the tried and true are the antihistamine medications that are often taken in, in response to, but they can also be taken prophylactically if you know you're going to be exposed to uh, the cold temperatures. But I would say if you haven't seen an allergist uh, recently, I would definitely recommend going to see one because there's certainly been a lot of developments in the area of urticaria and different 
uh, allergic uh, allergy treatments over the past several years. So I think it'd be worthwhile checking that out. Okay, great advice. We're going to have to wrap things up. Dr. Zach, thanks so much. Until the next time, Estelle, thanks for your call. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from 11 to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.